0: This is a study on the book of Galatians. At times it's verse by verse, other times it's overview. It's a two part series. We're in week 16. So, for those of you who missed the first few weeks, first session, um, there's a few things you can do. You can see me and I can get you, and I owe you. (laughs) I just realized. You can see me and you can get the. um, There were no extras? Okay, alright. You can see me and get the um, notes and or audio like I'm capturing now for the previous lesson. Um, They'll all be put together as MP3s on on a CD for you. Um, You can go to the website at graftedin.com. Click on commentaries on the front page. That'll take you to everything from the Torah portions to um, apologetics. There's a section called more lessons. Click on that. And in that section... You'll find the study on Galatians as it stands. Uh, like I said, about 50, 60 pages, something like that. And you, and that's the bulk of what I'm teaching right now. All right, let's open up in prayer. Aveeno or our Father, our King. Lord, we're excited about uh, what you're doing in and through us. Uh, we thank you for the um, the fact that you've called us your own, that you've called us out of sin and out of darkness and into your marvelous light. You have given us the promise of your Son, Um, the promise of your spirit and the preservation of your word so that we can uh, continue to be a holy people for you. Bless you, Father, for uh, all that you're continuing to do uh, through us. We know that um, we're far from perfect, and so we look to you to grow us up, to help us to um, uh, continue to model ourselves after Yeshua. Uh, Thank you for the example that he has given to us and the words that have been preserved for us in the pages of your Torah. Uh, We know that if we apply them, and if we avail ourselves of the Spirit, um, that according to the words of Paul, um, that, we can, that we're can, we super conquerors, really. Um, so we thank you for this position and this privilege. Help us not to take it lightly. Bless us tonight as we study. And we'll be careful to recognize your son Yeshua's name on me. Alright, my name is Ariel lyman As I mentioned, this is a study on the, the book of Galatians. Um, We did a little recap last week, for those of you who weren't here last week. uh, I did do a handout. I'll give you the handout later on. All I did was a recap on the term covenantal nomism, or nomism. I think it's nomism, though, myself. Um, It is the notion that Israel has a place in the covenants of God based on her, um, well, just the virtue of her being the covenant people. There's a lot of truth in that. God only chose Israel. But, There is room for misunderstanding your position in the covenant if you are not careful to um, allow the Spirit to reveal it to you. And Israel, unfortunately, by the first century, by by Yeshua's day and by Shaul's day, they had misunderstood their covenant position. And so that's where we pick up the discussion. We're actually in chapter 3 of Galatians. We're going to start out in chapter 3 today. Um, Chapter 1 and 2 really laid the foundation for understanding the book. At least how I taught it, it did. But we're going to start out in chapter 3. What in what I'm going to end up giving you also by way of students, those of you. In fact, you know what? I'm remiss. I should take attendance first. I don't know where my attendance is. I'll take it. I'll take it near the end of the class. How's that? Um, I'm just so eager to teach. I'm just forgetting about the attendance rules and things like that. Some of you are taking this for LTS. What you'll end up getting if you can give one of the extras to him. Um, what you'll end up getting. Is my doctored up version of David Stern's version of the book of Galatians. And the way that helps is, as we understand Galatians, how it unfolds, how many, first of all, how many of you have um, Stern's version? I know I do, and I know you do, and I know you. Okay. Stern did a good job in introducing the world to what I call good Torah, bad Torah. Because up until that time, there was simply no Torah. Now, I'll explain what I mean. Um, these terms are invented by me, as far as I, as far as I know. They're just to help me understand what's taking place. You could say that um, there's kind of a level one, level two, and then level three understanding of Galatians and Paul's whole worldview. At level one, which is more or less um, shared by the the church the church at large today, at level one um, there is no Torah. There's no Torah. There's no good Torah, bad Torah. No Torah in this in my limited understanding here of understanding the way the church wields it. No Torah means that if you ask your average church theologian today, is the Torah relevant for our lives as believers, specifically Gentiles? And the answer will be no. You mean I can't keep it if I still believe in Jesus? No, there's no need to. That, that's what I mean by no Torah. There's no good Torah, there's no bad Torah. There's just no Torah. What do we have now instead? It's the G word. Grace, okay. All right, but David Stern, entered, by the way, this view of Torah is... Um, fueled by dispensationalism, which kind of replaced supersessionalism, which was really bad. Supersessionalism, or replacement theology, which started around 110 A.D., somewhere around then, um, sometime right after the beginning of the 2nd century, supersessionalism, or otherwise known as replacement theology, said that God had replaced Israel with the church. There was no more Israel. Israel's was off, they were gone. There was no room for Israel. It's only the church. You could neatly do a cut and paste in your Bible and take everywhere in the Old Testament where it said, because there wasn't a New Testament yet, right? Everywhere it said Israel and just mark it out, white it out, put it in the word church, and it would have fit your theology, more or less. That's supersessionalism. That was the church view up until about Luther, and then uh, Luther brewed up this view, or it wasn't really him that did it, but around that time period, something known as dispensationalism kicked in, where now we have, well, there is Israel, they're on the map, they're just over out in left field. God worked with Israel, then he skipped over to the church, and then somehow he's going to skip back to Israel in the end of time. He goes through different dispensations. So the dispensation with Israel was what we call the dispensation of law. <laughs> and the dispensation with church is called the dispensation of grace, or no law. Yeah. All right, anyway, so that's where we pick up. We're in Notar. That's what I call level one, or room one. David Stern, who is a Messianic Jew... Um, born Jewish, raised Jewish, and came to believe in Yeshua, reads through Paul's letters and says, You know what? Paul's not combating true Torah observance, because David Stern's an observant Jew. And he's raised as someone who understood Judaism from the not the Christian argument point of view, but from first hand knowledge. So he thought he thinks to himself, I read Paul's letters and Paul can't be saying that the law's done away with. What is Paul combating? What is Paul's what's Paul's antagonism in um, in these letters. what is Who are the enemy? Who are the, pro, who are the antagonists? Uh, what's, 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 to use Rashi's uh, term, what's, what's bothering Paul? <laughs> to use my commentary's name. So, David Stern introduces something called Good Torah Bad Torah. Now, let me explain what this is. And then I'm going to jump to my commentary. Good Torah is Torah done in, by, through faith in Yeshua. Good Torah is Torah done after you come to faith in Messiah. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. But good Torah is Torah done for the right reasons. We'll just put it that way. Bad Torah, conversely, would be what? Torah done for the wrong reasons. What would bad Torah be described as in the eyes of the church? How would the church describe bad Torah? Notice you have no Torah here, no good or bad. At least David Stern, was good or bad Torah. How would the church describe bad Torah? Legalism, thank you. Wielding Torah for the sake of saving someone. That's how the church reads Paul's letter, and their conclusion is, no Torah. David Stern reads Paul's letters and says, hmm, my conclusion is good Torah, bad Torah. In other words, every time we have the phrase works of law, or under the law, or things like that, um, according to David Stern, it's a misuse of Torah. That's what I mean by bad Torah. Really, we know that there's no bad Torah, right? God's good, and everything that God gives us is good. But I'm just using the phrase bad Torah so you can understand. It's man that misinterprets God's gracious law. So we call it bad because man makes it bad. All right, Man misuses God's tool and therefore it's, it, it is a bad thing. right? But, so, but in, in introducing this view, at least he introduced something called good Torah. He challenged the church on keeping the Torah for the right reasons. Thus, the Messianic movement today is fueled by a lot of people who answer this way. Many Messianics, if if they're questioned by Christians, many Messianics will say, Oh no, I don't keep the Torah to become saved. I keep the Torah because I'm saved. Isn't that how most of you answer in this room? If someone questions you who's a believer, it's an in-house debate, believer versus believer. It's not unbelief. But when they see you keeping Sabbath, kosher, wearing tzitzit, going to festivals and things, and they know you're a believer, and then they get this big question mark on the face, well, don't you know that's all been done away with? And you're like, no, it hasn't been done away with. I'm doing it by faith, you know. You're introducing this concept of good Torah to them. Alright. So based on this whole argument, as we read through Paul, the primary thing that Paul's combating would be legalism. That means if this is if David Stern's version is correct, then the problem of the first century Judaism is that they wielded Torah incorrectly. This would be their social problem. Right? They had a misunderstanding ending of Torah. They, the Jews of the first century, according to David Stern, and according to the church of sorts, they just come to this different conclusions. According to David Stern, um, the the, view, the Jews of the first century took the Torah and wielded it like a simplistic ladder to heaven. If I do X, Y, Z, I'll get into heaven. And that is how the church understands Paul. They just come to a different conclusion than David Stern. The church understands Paul's conclusion as no Torah. David Stern understands Paul's view as good Torah. Right? So far, we're, that's where we're at. Well, guess what? We're both off. <laughs> History has shown that, that Judaism did not wield Torah that way, and the church doesn't have a clue, because they're not studying school. They're not studying Torah at all. And the, and the synagogue isn't helping them out, because they don't read the New Testament, and they discount the whole 1st century Pharisaic Judaism in the first place. They consider their birth going back to Yavne at 200 CE. They don't go back far enough. They don't, they don't count Pharisaic Judaism as their history. They start their history books at the same place the church does, like 2nd century and on. Wrong starting place. They need to start in the book of Acts, but... I can't convince the synagogue today to read the book of Acts. Alright, so what's really going on is not good Torah, bad Torah, or no Torah, but the issue of identity. Identity. Okay, this is the real issue facing the first century Judaism's, And this is what we've learned in the whole first 14 weeks. Let me describe it to you. This is covenantal gnomism. In this view, the 1st century Judaism, or the 1st century Jews, did not wield Torah to get into heaven. They felt, although it incorrectly, but it's based on a little bit of truth, they felt that by sheer virtue of being born Jewish, they enter into God's paradise. Therefore, if you think about it, it goes from a works-based self-effort to what? Grace. Isn't that interesting? Now it's still misguided grace. It is not theologically true that just because you're Jewish, you're getting into heaven. But it does change the um, it does change the way a person views his salvation. True, based on this picture, Paul is not combating a good Torah, bad Torah. And so that the, we, we might have to ask a question: How much Torah should the Gentiles keep? The question he's asking is: What do we as Jews do with those non-Jews? What do we do with the Gentiles? The question in the first century is not a Torah question. The question in the first century is an identity question. What do we do with the Jews? So what the Jewish people had done in Paul's day, at least even before Paul, they had created a man-made ceremony, the proselyte conversion ceremony, which would allow a Jew to change his status from Gentile to officially being Jewish, complete with a new um, lineage and everything. And in changing one, then the person was eligible, eligible for salvation. You could say they became saved by becoming Jewish. And in becoming Jewish, then the matter of Torah is introduced. Because there's a central theology in the first century that we don't catch today. And it's the, same, it's the same lie that's told today. Here's the lie. Let's draw a middle wall partition here. Let's put the church on this side and the synagogue on this side of today. I'm over in the church. If I, Ariel, a Jew who believes in Yeshua and tries to be Torah observant, if I ask your average church theologian today, is the Torah for the church, or is the Torah for Gentiles? What will be the answer? No. Okay. Mark that answer down. Cross my little fence, go over to the synagogue. I, Ariel, same Ariel, same 21st century, let's let's even say they're across the street from each other, I go over and I ask the rabbi, Rabbi, is the Torah for the church? What's he going to tell me? No. So both groups today agree that the Torah is for Jews only. Yeah. Isn't that weird? We all know that's a lie or it's mis, mis mis misguided at best. Anyway, it's wrong. The Torah is not just for Jews only. But in the first century, they they felt that way. So if the Torah is for Jews only, then the problem the problem with Gentiles is what? They're Gentiles. If I can turn them into Jews first, then they can get the Torah. Do you see how different that is than good Torah, bad Torah, or no Torah? I don't give a Gentile... I'm a Jew in the first century now. Just, I keep jumping back forth between 21st and 1st. Um, let me use my Torah here. I'm a Jew. This is Torah. You're a Jew, and you're a Gentile, and you want to get into the covenant with God. Again, in the church's view, I, the Jew, give you the Torah so that if you keep it, you get in. That's the church's view, and their conclusion is no Torah. It's grace. David Stern comes along and says, no, 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 it's good Torah, bad Torah. I tell you that you have to believe in Jesus, that's right, but then after that, you can keep the Torah for... Um, because there's this legalistic view out there that, you know, some of you're an unbelieving Jew, I'm a believing Jew. Is it, can I make you an unbelieving Jew? It's, all right, my fellow havarim here, they think that they need to keep the Torah to be saved, but I'm telling you, all you got to do is believe in Jesus. But after that, you can keep the Torah. All right, that's David's turn to you. It's theologically correct. The good Torah part and the bad Torah part. But the problem is it's not, that's not Paul's argument in the first century. The Judaisms didn't believe that. What they believed was, you're a Jew, I'm a Jew, you're sa- you're unsaved, unsaved, it doesn't matter, we both get Torah. You are Gentile, you don't get any of this. You want to get this? you got to convert to Judaism first. Then you can have the Torah. You don't get saved by keeping the Torah. You get you, you, beca- you get saved, if I can use church from becoming a Jew, and then the Torah becomes yours. So now, using that terminology, even though it's still incorrect, right? Theologically, it's wrong. But watch this. If I give you the Torah after you become a Jew, do you keep the Torah because you're saved or to become saved? Because he's saved. In other words, I've got to couch it in their language. First century, he's a Jew, I'm a Jew, he's a Gentile. Jew, Jew, Gentile. You can't have the Torah until you're a Jew. Once you convert, now you can have the Torah. So now I can ask you, do you keep the Torah to become Saved, or do you keep the Torah because you're saved? I'm saved because I'm a Jew, Jew, therefore I can keep the Torah. So I keep the Torah because I'm saved. Now we're back to full circle again. Isn't that what I just asked you all a second ago? See how confusing it gets? There's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you mix it all together, and you throw in Paul, and not to mention the fact that he uses code words (laughs) for half of this stuff up there. It'd be neat if he described it the way I described it. Wouldn't it be neat if there were a Bible that described it that way? Yeah, question. Okay. <laughs> okay. Jewish people or today? Who's a Jew? She brought up a good question. You're probably now asking, well, oh, this is great. This is great. For all, who, how many of you like history? Kind of like slight history. But this is great if you're a history buff. Why do I care today? I'll tell you why. Two reasons. We, I described those mirrors in my little fence, church, synagogue. Where's the group I didn't describe yet? The Messianics. Yeah, you know where we fit in? We're riding the fence. We have half the people in the Messianic movement who say, you've got to be a Jew or else you're not full covenant member. Yeah, half the people in the Messianic movement who believe in Jesus are coming up with this nonsense. And the other half are going, well, no, we're just, we're just. God love us, we're, we're Ephraim. Or we're, we're it, it gets, we're scrambling over this identity issue. This problem has not gone away in 2,000 years. From the 1st century to the 21st century. That's why it's relevant for us today. Because, again, still the battle lines are being drawn over these issues today. You'd think, you know, modern man would have moved on past this. Especially in the Messianic movement, us with the Spirit, and, and, and we're still wrestling with this. It's a mess. In fact, I'll, I'll make it even worse. I'm going to go on record as saying this. The Messianic movement today is putting together a conversion policy for Messianics. I'm not against conversion, but I'm against conversion for the wrong reason. Messianic movement wielded by mostly Jews, the leader on the, from the top heavy, uh, the UMJC, MJAA. Who doesn't know what those are when I say that? UMJC is the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations. MJAA would be the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America. Um, The General Secretary is Russ Resnick, UMJC. He speaks for Messianic Judaism. He doesn't speak for me, and he probably doesn't speak for you, but he speaks for Messianic Judaism. So by default, if you guys are a part of Messianic Judaism, then of sorts he speaks for you too. They're trying to come up with a conversion policy to deal with this identity issue. Because even though they're Messianic Jews, they're still scratching their heads trying to figure out is the Torah for Gentiles? Is it fully Gentiles? And there are a lot of Gentiles looking in, like the candy store principle, the kids on the outside of the glass, peering in, eyes real big, looking at the candy, salivating, and the Jews are on the inside going, you can't have this. We're Jewish, so we get the Torah. And We both got Messiah, and I love you, but... Sorry, you're not Jewish. That type of thing. So, um, both groups are looking at the book of Galatians and Paul's letters to try and figure out where do we fit in. So, that's why we're doing this study. Because guess what? If they create the conversion policy, and it's been ongoing since 2003, but if they create it, it will instantly create an identity issue in the Messianic movement. Because there are scores of Gentiles already waiting to convert to Messianic Judaism. It will splinter us further. A little bit of both. The Messianic movement is looking at the non-Messianic Judaism and wishing to seek credibility in their eyes. They're screaming at them, We're valid! We're valid Judaism! You guys recognize all the other streams of Judaism, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist, the four main branches. And the Messianics come along and say, We're a legitimate Judaism. Of course, all the other four say, No, you're not. So they're seeking some legitimacy. Well, all the other four have a conversion policy. We don't. So we're looking to be authentic. The Church doesn't care about the conversion. At least not from Jew to Gentile. So it's not their issue. It's our issue. So we, we best deal with it. Because no one else is going to deal with it. We can't get any answers from the church who says the Torah is for them. We can't get answers from the synagogue who says the Torah is for them. So all these people who are believers, who are believers in Yeshua, they're messianics, but they're weak in their faith, and they go under that conversion policy, what are they really saying matters most in God's eyes? Your identity. They're going back to the first century lie. Yeah, that's why it's so egregious to us in the Messianic movement who say, no, no, the Torah is for both of us. Jews don't turn into Gentiles when they come to believe in Jesus, but Gentiles don't turn into Jews either. The whole notion that I'm a Jew now that I'm a believer, but yesterday I was a Gentile before I was a believer, that doesn't work either. We need both identities to make up God's family. Just like a true marriage, let me give you a paradigm, a true marriage in God's eyes is the marriage between a male and a female. There's no male and male marriage in God's economy. There's no female-to-female marriage. We have to have the differing pairs. The two come together as one, but they are different, but they are together. The umbrella is marriage, and they are different in their their, um, sexes, but they are one in the covenant of marriage. And if we don't have two, you can't have a man out by himself married, and you can't have a female out by herself married, and you can't have two men come together and enjoy marriage. And you can't have two females come together and get married. Only when we take two from one of, the, of the, each of the sexes, bring those together, then it's marriage. The same paradigm is true in Israel. This little thing right there, that's an imaginary umbrella. Israel must comprise herself of Jew, I was going to say Jew and Christian, Jew and Gentile, or she ceases to be Israel. Israel's not all Jewish. Israel's not all Gentile. From the beginning, God designed that Jew and Gentile together, wed together, would be Israel. So when someone from outside of Israel joins Israel, they retain their respective identity as Jew or Gentile. That doesn't say that they can't convert once they're in here. But if all are Gentile or all are Jew, then that's why Paul says strange things like, Is he the God of the Jews only? In Romans 3.29. That's what he means. Is Israel all Jewish? Yeah, he could have very well said it. And we could say the same thing to the church. Is is the church all Gentile? Question? The rabbis, who do they? Who's the they? How do they? How did the church answer that? Or, I'm sorry, the church or the synagogue? Either group, I'll answer for both sides. The church downplays it. Yeah, a mixed multitude, but when they came to Sinai, they all became they all became Jewish, or they all converted, or it's a very minor multitude. It wasn't a multitude. It was, it was I mean, it was a mixed multitude, but it was a minor mixture. You know, two million Jews and a couple hundred Gentiles. They downplay it. The rabbis swap it all around. You can grab any, say, art scroll edition of the Tanakh or whatever, and look up the word ger, which is the Hebrew word for stranger, and they translate it as Starts with a P. Proselyte. What are they trying to say? What's a proselyte? A Jew, I'm sorry, a Gentile on his way to becoming a Jew. Yeah, yeah, that, that's how it is. So that's how, so let's re- Did you have a question or comment? I know, I can't, I can't agree with either one, too. That's why I said it's interesting of both groups. But who are we, the Messianic movement, to speak so loudly? We're like nobody. You know, Judaism, we can't, we're, we're, we're just illegitimate. That's why it put us on the fence. The painful spot. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. They have acquiesced. The Jewish community today has finally come to the point. I mean, they were in the corner for so long saying, no, no, it's Jewish only, it's Jewish only, Jewish only. They got pushed into the corner and then finally the church left them alone to pick on someone else, the Muslims, I guess. And they went, gosh... Okay, let's give them, the Gentiles, a little bit of legitimacy. Let's give them seven. They do the seven, they go to heaven. And they don't have to become Jewish to do it. So, in a sense, they're recognizing the legitimacy of the Gentile identity. But in a sense, in a, in a sense, it's, it's, not, it's not a lot of room. And even that's nonsense. The Noahide nonsense. Give me a break. What? The Noahide laws is a supposed list put together by the rabbis in like the 15th century that, there's, that when Noah stepped off the ark, the idea is that Noah is not a Jew. Abraham was the first Jew. You can taste your, trace every Jew today back to Abraham, and then before Abraham, everything's just like Gentile. I'm using air quotes there. So because Noah is Gentile, God comes to Noah and says, here, Noah, and we look at it. If you read it, God says, Noah, you know, go and do this, don't kill, don't whatever. It gives them kind of a mini Torah of sorts. The rabbis look at that and go, hey, maybe this is like a a mini list for the Gentiles. And so they call the Noahide laws, sons of Noah, because Noah would be considered a Gentile in that sense. So they say, all right, you, the Gentile, today, I'm the Jew, you're the Jew, you're the first century. I'm sorry, we're in the 21st century, but you're a Gentile. You can't keep all 613, because that's for the Jews. So i got two choices for you if you want to get into heaven. Either A... You can convert to Judaism, do all 613. 613 is the number of laws that the rabbis suppose that there. Or, um, you can keep the seven as a Gentile, and then you'll get into. The seven are something like, do you know what they are off the top of your head, Ryan? No prohibition of killing against eating an animal from a torn, uh, a torn limb from an animal. Um, Fornication, sacrifice to idols, and there's some positive ones. You're supposed to establish governments and things like that. No murder, no incest, or something like that. It's just a, it's almost like a it's almost like the Ten Commandments of sorts, but it's yeah, yeah. And again, that's reading into the text. God doesn't say anything like that. There's no such thing. Let me read this for you. Yeah, it's not even a list. Anyway, it's not even yeah. So, all right. So, with this in mind, with this background in mind, let's seek to understand Paul. What does Paul mean when he says "under the law" or things like that? What what is that phrase? Remember, I, in the first uh, session, I gave you this like little cheat sheet of observing the law means this, under the law means this, works of the law means this. Well, we're kind of gonna kind of revisit that in the weeks to come. Look at your paper there. If you look at the bottom, you'll see it starts at page thirty-one. It is like I said, about a fifty or sixty-page document. We're starting in chapter three. Paul picks up his argument. I'll just read verses two and three. I would like to learn just one thing from you. I can't remember which version this is. I think it's i N-A-S-B, I'm sorry. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after having begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Alright, pause. Before I even comment on my own commentary, taken at face value, you would think that this verse is talking about good Torah, bad Torah. I mean, that's all it looks like. It says, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? The Greek phrase there would be ergon namas, um, or by believing what you heard. Are you so foolish? After every have begin with the Spirit. Notice, by the way, that whoever Paul is addressing. Which, by the way, we, we we believe that there are the situation in Galatians is comprised of a group of people. Let's say you're the Galatian crowd, all right? And I'm Paul. I'm writing the letter to you. You're the Galatian community. Obviously, along its natural lines, you're divided between Jew and Gentile. Male and female, Jew and Gentile. There are Jews in the crowd, there are Gentiles in the crowd, there are males in the crowd, there are females. There are believers in the crowd, there are unbelievers in the crowd. So Paul's writing a letter and everybody's getting it. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit? He's speaking to whom? Believers or unbelievers? Believers. And notice, did you receive, if I look this up, I'm pretty sure it is now, but I, I could go look it up if you don't believe me. The receive there, the verb is in the past tense. Or it, in the Greek we would say, in the, um, uh, it might be in the aorist tense. Which simply means that it happened and it was significant that it happened. Uh, perfect tense would be that it happened in the past and it has ongoing effects. It might be the perfect tense there, but oftentimes Paul uses the aorist to, to signify that it did happen. Did you receive the Spirit after observing the law? In other words, how did you get God's attention? Was it that you observed the law and then God gave you the Spirit? And w- the phrase observe the law there is the kicker. If observe the law means bad Torah like the church says, then we have Paul saying that legalism is wrong. Now, theologically, isn't that sound? You can't keep the Torah to become saved. Do you agree with me? Alright, so theologic, the church's theological agreement is right. That's where it's difficult for us to share our case with them. Because theologically, when they say, you can't keep the Torah to be saved, we agree. But it's the wrong argument. That's all we're trying to say. Don't read that back into Paul. That's not what Paul's arguing. This is what Paul's arguing. The phrase observing the law is code word. (laughs) Aragon namas, works of law, is not referring to keeping the law to become saved. It refers to the halakhic requirement wielded by the group to get into the group. Now, it does break down to a set of do's and don'ts. But they're not categorized as works any more than your average, any more than faith in Messiah is considered a work. Would you agree that faith in Messiah is the prerequisite to get into heaven? But would you call that faith a work? Is that self-effort? No. You wouldn't couch it in those terms. You have to believe in... Like if I say out of one side of my mouth, there's nothing you can do to get into heaven. It's, it's a free gift. And, and you're an unbeliever. And then I turn around and say, but you've got to believe in Jesus to get into heaven. As an unbeliever, you might go, but you just told me something I have to do. So, that might be confusing. The Judaisms of Paul's day looked at this halakhic um, requirement of works of law not as a work not the, the same way that that the uh, gentiles would consider believing in f- yeshua that faith part not a work it's just simply the prerequisite but it's not a work it's not a it's not a it's not a self effort if i can use that term did i lose anyone there or did everyone follow me great all right yes oh okay oh okay i lost you <laughs> at least she's honest okay um Bad Torah would be considered a work by the church, self-effort, because it's something done not only for me, but by me. It's something done under my strength. It's not a surrendering to God's willing, rather it is an offering that I present and hope that God accepts it. It's like God is over in this corner, and I take my Torah observance and offer it up to him, and he's supposed to give me salvation in return. That would be called bad Torah, because then I'm using the Torah very simplistically. Because in that scenario, I could, my, my Torah observance could be devoid of any true faith in God. I'm simply going the quid pro quo, the, it's the big Santa Claus principle. I give to you, you give to me, something like that. And there's no faith involved. But in true, in true biblical covenants, from God's point of view, He's interested in our heart, and therefore He woos us, and we surrender to His, his, his bidding. And in that surrender, we don't call that a work in Christian terms. Not self-effort, anyway. It's not self-effort, it's a surrender. Well, Judaism of the first century would call their Jewish identity grace, and they would call the package that they give to the Gentiles, oh, the wooing. They wouldn't call it self-effort. Does that make sense? No, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to exonerate the first century Judaism for, the for their sake alone. I'm trying to exonerate... The, the, the view that Paul's uh, uh, combating. I'm trying to get a more accurate view of what Paul's talking about. And, and it, we'll talk about it in a moment. But look at my comments. No other chapel in the Bible has caused more theological misunderstandings than chapter 3 of Galatians. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> this is where, it, where it's made or broken. Galatians is the book that the church wheels to prove that Torah's done away with. Galatians is the book that we need to use to prove that Torah is not only not done away with, but that this whole nonsense about the Messianic Judaism identity conversion, all that stuff is just that, nonsense. So Galatians is the book. It's Paul's first book. It's, it's not his greatest book, per se, but it's his first one. Alright, we would do well to tread cautiously as we seek to unlock its meanings. Again, Shaul turns to his irony with a rhetorical question about the origins of the giving of the rule Kakodesh, the Holy Spirit, among the Galatian believers. Shaul surely knows firsthand from whence the Spirit flows. When he asks him, I'd just like to learn one thing, where'd you get the spirit? He already knows, it's a rhetorical question. Um, He is attempting to shock the readers back into some semblance of biblical reality. Having begun with the truth of Yeshua's atoning death, how could they possibly be considered going back on such a revelation? To the apostle, such a notion was ludicrously untenable. Again, knowing that the Greek word for law is namos and it can refer to the oral tradition of proselyte conversion, helps us to understand Paul to be challenging its validity among genuine covenant members. So the question in the first century is, how does one become a covenant member? It's the question on both people's minds, Jew and Gentile. The Jewish answer was, for themselves. How does one become a covenant member? The Jewish answer for themselves is, by birth. The Jewish answer for the Gentile is, conversion, which conversely is the same answer for the Gentiles because they couldn't say by birth, so they must agree with the Jewish position. right? They have no choice but to say, well, gosh, how do we get in? And the Jew says, well, I'm glad you asked. you got to become a Jew. All right. Surely lasting covenant membership is not acquired by human effort, but rather by placing one's trust in the ultimate son of the covenant, Yeshua himself. Our opening question might better be phrased as so. Quote, I, would ju- I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by becoming proselytes or by believing what you heard? That's what he's saying when he says observing the law. I'm taking the word, the phrase, observing the law, and I'm decoding it back to fit what Paul's arguing. Again, it's so important that we in this classroom get this. Paul is not talking about good Torah, bad Torah. He's not saying he's not saying to the to his letter. Did you guys receive the Spirit by observing the law? That's what the church teaches today, and that causes them and us to come up with a resounding. No, as the answer, because you can't keep the Torah to be saved. It was never given to, be, to save an individual. It's not, that's not the way the tool works. So theologically, the church asks the good question, and theologically, they come up with the right answer. And so theologically, we need to agree with them. But historically, it's the wrong argument, because it doesn't deal with the real issue in Paul's letters. Because what does that answer do? Although it's theologically true, what does it do for the Messianic community as far as Torah is concerned? If they feel that Paul's saying that the Torah is not to be used to be saved, then the church's conclusion is: let's get rid of the Torah. Yeah, and that is their conclusion today. They opt out, grace versus Torah, like they choose. You know, they go shopping, grace, Torah, grace, Torah. Well, Paul said Torah doesn't work to save you, so pitch that, and they go off into their grace-only theology. So theologically, they start off correct, and then they end off, end up theologically incorrect. So the only way to change the argument there is to change their view, in my opinion of Paul's argument don't sit there and argue with someone about is the Torah right or wrong right? because theologically you'll find yourself agreeing with them theologically but then disagree with them as to application on the theology and it gets all messy just say what if Paul wasn't talking about the Torah then the, I, I promise you most most Christians will go er? they've not heard of covenantal gnomism that's sad alright um, surely lasting covenant membership is not acquired by human effort but rather by placing, okay I read the sentence Paul immediately provides his answer a resounding, are you so foolish? it's a rhetorical question and then he asks the same question twice he just rephrases it, it's called tautology where you say the same thing two different ways you just emphasize it slightly different the second time around to suppose that human achievement could in some way trump the grace of God as afforded by his only son was an exercise in futility Paul knew this because on the Torah observance scale, where was he before he came to faith in Messiah? He was right up there. He calls himself blameless. Yeah. If anybody kept the Torah perfectly, he did. In that sense. And in his own, being his own um, judge of Torah observance, he was perfect. Now of course, once he came to Messiah and he was looking back at himself, did a, did a 180 and looked back at his own life, he realized, oh gosh, I'm a mess. If I was a mess. But blinded by his own pride, gosh, he, you know, looked pretty good. The second question, then, is merely a clarification of his previous inquisition, stating this time, using the explicit language of the influencers. Now, the influencers, I've capitalized the I there, the influencers are the antagonists. Paul's the protagonist, the influencers are the antagonists. Paul's the protract, pro, pro... There's another word I wanted to use there. Paul's the good guy, they are the bad guys. These people, the influencers, are what the church calls... Judaizers. Do you know why I don't use the term Judaizer? That's rather pejorative. It's rather negative to say a Judaizer. Why? Because a Judaizer, according to the Greek term, is simply someone who lives like a Jew. So if you are a Jew, what's wrong with living like a Jew? Nothing. And even if you're not a Jew, what's wrong with imitating the Jews if they're doing it right? Nothing. So the term Judaizer, if you can help your Christian friends, if they use the term, you guys are Judaizers. First of all, theologically, that's wrong. But second of all, etymologically, that's wrong too. So correct them on both levels. It's theologically wrong. I'm not trying to Judaize you. And number two, if I'm a Jew and Jesus is a Jew and I want to live like him, Judaizing is a good thing, not a bad thing. All right. Okay. So we used, I, I use the term influencer because it's more neutral. Influencers are just the people in the group who are trying to influence the other people of the group. More neutral, right? Takes the word Judaize out of there. Although, etymologically, I'll show you in chapter 2, verse 14, that the word Judaize is there. Iu- iudaizain is a Greek term. Alright, um, the influencers viz human effort, referring back to the proselyte ceremony. The historic position held to by the later emerging Christian church. Now, of course, this is the one we just described. The historic, uh, the later emerging Christian church, that the apostles pitting true faith in Yeshua against any supposed Torah observance finds no basis from the context of Paul's argument here. So, you know what this means? Most Christian Bibles don't have a clue what Paul's talking about. David Stern did a good job in bringing out good Torah, bad Torah, but he still missed the mark. That's why I corrected his version too. If I could, if I could have him in this class, I would. If you're listening to this tape, David Stern. Um, his is a great version. Don't pitch it. It's a good version, because he has a lot of good stuff to say. But, I mean, because it's a step above this. But it's just not there yet. We don't have any versions that look like this. Unless you got my doctored up version, then it looks like that. Alright, so don't pitch your David Stern version. It's a good version, but just know that he's still missing it. Um, indeed, we must allow the context of the letter to determine what is driving his consternation. Read without the clarity of context, we will forever misconstrue Paul to be teaching Gentile believers that Hashem's laws hold no value in the place of the practical application on the very promise inherited through Yeshua the Savior. In other words, that's why we can't go the direction that the church is going right now. Read without the clarity of context, we will misinterpret Paul to be denigrating the Torah in favor of being led by the Spirit. Yeah, And David Stern is in, is in favor of being led by the Spirit. He got that part right. Well, give him credit for that. Give him credit where he's, where he's right, but he still thinks that the battle that Paul's struggling with is Torah, and it's not. It's identity. Torah becomes a side issue in Paul's arguments. If he can get the identity question, question out of the way, this Torah question will fall in line from Paul's argument, because back then it was who, who, who has the right to keep Torah, and it was a Jew-only argument, according to there. It is the question throughout all of Paul's letters. It is the hermeneutic key to understanding Paul, I promise you without being ridic- uh, guilty of reductionism. Um, but it is the primary issue. The other primary issue is the unregenerate man. If you're unregenerate, then it doesn't matter how much Torah you avail yourself of, you're unregenerate. You're not going to get there. You're not going to get God's attention. So that becomes a secondary or pr- other primary issue in Paul's arguments. But other, other than that, whenever you see the word Jew and Gentile show up in Paul's, in one of those chapters, get your antennas up and look for this identity issue. That's what's going on. Verse 5. Let's see if we can actually hit it. we got like four minutes. Does God... Because it's the same argument. Does God give you a spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Again, the phrase that you have rendered in your, in your translation right here that says observe the law. The observe part is the Greek word ergon. Translated usually as works or obedience. And... The the, uh, Greek article, the, is not in the passage. So, if your translation says works of the law, the word the is not there. O, H-O, O, -o is not there. Um, It's ergon, namas. Namas is law, but it's understood to be uh, Torah. It can mean, and we're going to get into this in later subsequent teachings, it can refer to oral tradition, oral law, as opposed to written law. Aragon namas is the Greek phrase that's usually translated "works of the law." It would be more woodenly translated "works of law," or "law works." And so, for that reason, and this Paul's Paul's this term is intra-Jewish terminology. It's this is the reason why it's baffled uh, uh, translators down through the centuries because this term does not show up anywhere in Paul's. Um, other, I'm sorry, it doesn't show up in any other writings. It seems like Paul pulled it out of thin air. And so for that reason, the church had no choice but to translate it as works of obedience to the law, or obedience to the law. Like you're translating it right here, observe the law. And that's not what Paul means. He really What namas means, in reality, is conversion for the Gentile, and for the Jew... It doesn't mean conversion, because you don't convert Gentile Jews. We'll talk about what it means for Jews later on. It would take me too long to develop what it means. But primarily, just know that for Gentiles, it means conversion. So, all we have to do is decode it. I don't even have to read my comments. Does God give you a spirit and work miracles among you because you converted? Or because you believed what you heard? It's conversion versus faith, not law versus faith. You've heard the whole argument, law versus grace? Dead argument, people. Dead argument. Yeah comments. This verse is a restating of the previous round of rhetorical questioning. Obviously by now we know that Paul is not in favor of ethnic-driven righteousness, a position maintained by his detractors. That's the word I want to use, detractors. Paul's the protractor, they're the detractors. The evidence that the Galatians are already, second side of the page, the Galatians are already in possession of genuine and lasting covenant status, read here is salvation. When I say covenant status, that's synonymous with today's lingo of salvation. But we don't knock on doors today and say, hi, we're just knocking on doors and we'd like to know, if you were to die today, are you 100% sure that you are a covenant member or would you have some doubt? We don't say that. We say, are you, do you think you'd go to heaven? Do, you, do We use saved, we don't use covenant member. But in Paul's day, saved and covenant member were the same term. Today we don't use covenant member. Alright, not as much anyway, unless you're like, maybe a Mormon. Galatia, uh, let's see. Already in possession of genuine lasting covenant status is the fact that the real kakodesh is indeed working among them. Paul knows they're saved. He's just trying to shake them to their senses. Recall Peter's surprise when the rule Kakodesh, I'm running out of time here. Um, recall Peter surprised when the rule Kakodesh fell freely on Cornelius and accompanying Acts and in Acts chapter ten. Why was Peter surprised that the Holy Spirit fell on Gentiles? Why? For a myriad of reasons, but I'll just name at least two. One, because the Spirit fell on Gentiles. They hadn't converted and the Spirit was being given. And two, it's because the term Holy Spirit in, in first century Judaism was thought of as being reserved only for Jews, in a sense, and only then for pious Jews. The term Holy Spirit is more correctly translated as the Spirit of Holiness. Why would the Spirit of Holiness fall on an unholy person, whether he's Jew or Gentile? So it's a double whammy. Not only did the Spirit of Holiness fall on a Gentile, or fall on, yeah, fall on a what they considered an unholy person, but he was not a Jew. I mean, it's, he's, not unho- he's not even a righteous Gentile. He's not even a God-fearer, like Cornelius. Or, I mean, well, Cornelius was, but the rest of the room, they're just like, whoa, this doesn't make sense. Why was he surprised? Because the long-standing belief among the Judaisms of the first century sincerely believed that God chose Jews only as covenant partners. By the way, only Jews and all Jews. We'll get into that later. All Israel and only Israel. Paul here is acknowledging the genuine work of the Spirit among his fellow Gentiles as proof positive that they were existing covenant members, a.k.a. saved, and not merely Gentile Jewish converts in the process of becoming covenant members. The question is meant to raise the issue of the minds of the Galatians as to what exactly attracts the attention of God himself, flesh or faith, and the is given below using Avraham, and that's where we'll turn next week. Paul's going to use Abraham as his exemplar, as his model of Who's in and who's not. So, in these last few moments, let me just, um, gosh, because I, I might mean, know I'm done. <laughs> but let me take attendance of sorts. Do I have... I don't have... Argh, I lost my attendance sheet. I don't know what I did with it. I thought I put it in here and I didn't. So, let me do this. Let me just put it on the back of this. Let's see. Mimi, I'll use it here. Mimi, you're the... Those of you who are in LTS, raise your hands first. Okay, Mimi, and Michael. All right. Let me just take numbers at least. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. And I'll transfer all the information later. Those of you who are just visitors, how many of you, this was your first time to one of my classes? Was it confusing? Was it confusing? Okay. Was it little new, information a little different. Yeah, most messianics, I can tell you right now, most messianics are familiar with with these levels, but this is a little new. This is a little new for some people, it's and I'm not I'm not making it up. I can I just don't have the time to substantiate it right now. But I can guarantee you, or I can promise you that that's what we're talking about. So, yes. You're, you're officially dismissed, by the way, if you need to get to another class or get your children. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O oh Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, produced and performed by ryan kingsley for more information on contacting ryan you can reach me by email at yeshua 613 at hotmail.com that's y-e-s-h-u-a number 613 at hotmail.com or visit our website at graftedin.com that's graftedin.com